Well, hey there, Chase Oaks. Uh, my name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And wherever you are joining from right now, whatever campus you're at, I'm so glad we get to be together here um, on part two of our series we're calling Joyride. And the premise of this series is that the journey of our lives, whatever journey you happen to be on, can be a joyride, which is great news, right? But it's also a little bit confusing because we also, we, we all experience things that steal joy from us. We have things in our lives that steal joy from us, like the Houston Astros. Um, and, and so how do we sort of navigate that? And that's what we're talking about in the series. So we are in the book of Philippians, which was written by the Apostle Paul as he sat in a Roman prison. Now we know that while Paul was in prison, he assumed that his imprisonment was not going to end well. And while he was there, uh, chained to a wall, chained to a Roman guard, uh, we don't know, he either penned or dictated a letter to a church that he founded about 10 years earlier in the Roman city of Philippi. And we also, and we know that that church was struggling, and we know that the people, the Christians in that church were suffering, and Paul assumed that their struggle was only going to increase. And so the context of this book is Paul is saying, I'm in prison, I'm probably going to be executed, you guys are suffering, it's probably going to get worse. Which is a, sounds like the context for a really cheerful letter, right? As a matter of fact, it is. Because the, 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 the most used word or concept in the book of Philippians, other than descriptions of Jesus, is joy. So the, so the real question of this series is, is joy really possible, like real joy, through, even through terrible circumstances? And I mean like real joy, like not just fake it, not just paint a smile on your face, pretend that nothing's wrong, but real joy, is it possible? And what we'll see in this series is not only is the answer, yes, it's possible, but for the Christian, the answer is, yes, it's expected. And the reason that I say that is that the majority of times the word joy or the concept of joy in the book of Philippians is presented, it is done so in the form of a command, an imperative command. Be joyful. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. How is that possible? Well, that's kind of what this series is about. And what we're going to be looking at today um, in, in Philippians chapter 2 is Paul is going to sort of make the argument that for us to have a joy that, can, that is not derailed by our circumstances, if we're going to have a resilient joy, we're going to need to believe some things and do some things that are going to feel really counterintuitive. In fact, what, what we're going to talk about today is, is, is foundational to what it looks like to follow Jesus, but it is so counterintuitive that many of us, if not most of us, much of the time, I think, struggle to believe that the Bible actually means it. So let's jump in. We are... This week we are in Philippians 2 and we're going to be talking about a counterintuitive mindset that drives counterintuitive decisions that in turn produce joy in our life. And we're going to start with verse 1 of Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... No, wait, let me stop. Um, 
I'll, I'll, I'll jump back in just a minute. So when, when Paul uses the word if right here, he's not asking a question. He's making a statement of something that's obvious. He's, he's creating an if-then argument. It's sort of like saying, well, if 2 plus 2 equals 4, then 2 minus 2 equals 0. Does that make sense? Okay, let me, I'll back up. I'll, uh, I'll start all over. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So since they have experienced these amazing things, since they've experienced comfort and tenderness in Christ's love and joy in his presence, like all of these things, since they've experienced these, these incredible things, Paul is urging them to do something. And that something is for them to have the same mindset. So that all of them, so that all of us, because we have also experienced those things, so that all of us can think the same way can have the same goals and aspirations for our life, which kind of begs the question, what mindset could that be? What mindset is so foundational to the Christian life that Paul can say anyone who is in Christ should think this way? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter your age or your gender or your, or your race or, or any of those things. What mindset could be so foundational that he says this is for all of you. Now, real quick, if you're, if, if you're joining us right now and you're watching this message and you're, or you're listening to it and you are not from Texas, I want to give you a little lesson on Texas speak, real quick. If you are in Texas and you're talking to one person, you use the pronoun you, of course, because like, we speak English, like that's what, that's what you do. Now, if you, if you are talking to a group of people, we say, y'all, right. The perfect word for a group. I don't understand why everyone doesn't use the word y'all. It is, it is a great word. Now, if you are talking to a group of people and you want to make sure everyone is included and no one is left out, you say, all y'all. That's right. All y'all. The most emphatic y'all of all. And so if... Paul was here, he said, he said, this mindset is for all y'all. No one left out, every person included. What mindset could that be? It's humility. Humility of a life that is focused, expressed in a life that is focused on others. Um, so no matter where... You're coming from, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter all, any, any of those things. You are in the all y'all. You're not left out. So listen to what Paul says in the very next verse. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. I'll say that again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
And if that feels a little abstract and we need a and we need an example, then we're in luck because in the very next verse he gives us an example. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So if we're all to be and have the same mindset, he's saying this is the same mindset that Jesus had. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying, if we want to experience joy in the Lord, we should, you know, assume the same posture and the same mindset that the Lord had. Now that passage that we just read, particularly this verses 6 through 8 of Philippians 2, out of anywhere in the New Testament, that is the most concise description that we have of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And in it, Paul uh, talks about what theologians call the incarnation, where, where Jesus sets aside his divine um, rights and privileges and he humbles himself to take, on huma- to take on humanity. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. But then he also talks about the ultimate act of humility, of, of Jesus Offering himself as payment for sins for you and for me through, through his death on the cross. And we, we know these events and we know how special they are. We know how important they are. And we celebrate these events at Christmas and at Easter. And we thank God for his love for us. And we are overwhelmed by his grace. And we place our trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Praise God. However... The argument that Paul is making here is that those events aren't just events for us to celebrate and to remember and to place our trust in. They are examples for us to follow. Jesus creates a template of humility for us to emulate. Which means the cross of Jesus isn't just Something for us to believe so that we can go to heaven. The cross isn't just about a belief system. It's about a lifestyle. And so, what Paul describes here and what Jesus demonstrated in his life is what early Christians just called the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus was a way of living in humility and in love that focused on others. And so a lot of early Christians didn't actually call themselves Christians. They just called themselves followers of the way. Followers of the way of Jesus because they understood what the New Testament was teaching them in passages such as Philippians chapter 2 that we should emulate the humility and love and sacrifice of Jesus because following Jesus in his humility expressed in love and sacrifice and service of others is what following Jesus means. Um, And this way of Jesus was not only demonstrated in his life, it was also what he taught about. And so when we read through the gospel accounts, it's clear that that Jesus was ushering in something brand new that he called the kingdom 
of God. And according to Jesus, the kingdom of God has a completely different set of values, a different scorecard for our lives, different behaviors. And, and this is really important in a culture that's like real divisive and jockeying for position. And the kingdom of God has a different set of means to bring about desirable ends in the world. That those who are living in accordance to the kingdom of God just do things differently. But most of what we learn about the kingdom of God feels completely backwards to us. And completely upside down. But, but Jesus makes clear that the kingdom is not upside down. We're upside down. That's why it looks all backwards to us. But we're the ones that are using tools that don't make sense. We're the ones trying to find fulfillment and joy where they can't be found. So Jesus comes and he tells us that in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the one who made us, the kingdom of the one who made this world, God who knows what he's talking about. In his kingdom, in the kingdom of God, you win by losing. You lead by serving. You find joy through serving. You find life through giving one's life Away. In the kingdom, weakness is power. Power is weakness. Suffering leads to glory. And all of that feels wrong to us. Every single bit of it. But the, but the New Testament, it's all over the New Testament, and Jesus talks about it a lot. I'm just going to read just a few passages. Or Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 10, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Or in Matthew 23, the greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus called them, I love this, in Matthew 20, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. I mean, that's just how the world works, right? Those in authority use their authority over other people. But then Jesus continues, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then my, probably my favorite is John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So Jesus knew that he was all powerful, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So... So because he knew those things, this is what he did. So he got up from his meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet. And then just a few verses later, continues, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Jesus says, you're right to call me teacher and Lord. I'm pretty important. But he also knew that pretty soon they were going to be important too. Pretty soon other people were going to be looking to them for guidance. And so he says, okay, this is what I want you to do when you find yourself in a position of leadership. This is what I want you to do when you find yourself in a position of influence. Or this is what I want you to do when you find yourself uh, with more resources than others. When you find yourself with more money than others. Or, more, or more, more of a network than others. When you find yourself in a position where other people are looking to you. Or other people are listening to what you have to say. This is what I want you to do. I want you to make a decision. And a concerted effort to serve those who are looking up to you. And do it in a tangible way. Because in the kingdom, you don't lead from the top down. You serve from the bottom up. And that preaches so well. And you hardly ever see it. Right? You know, the way of Jesus that is presented in the Bible... It, it is set up in contrast to the way of the world. And while the way of Jesus might be counterintuitive to us, the way of the world is not counterintuitive at all. It feels completely normal to us, even as Christians. And the way of the world is a way of competition, a way of accomplishment and striving and winning. And it feels so native to us that it is hard for us to even imagine a world that isn't based on striving and winning. Which is why, and this is just in all honesty, which is why, even as Christians, we tend to assume right along with the rest of the world that the only way to exert influence is to lead. And just like the rest of the world, we tend to assume that success is defined by winning. And we, just like everybody else, tend to compare with everybody around us and see where we are, engage, and as long as we're not falling too far behind, we feel okay because it's all a competition. And just like everyone else, we tend to, not always, but we tend to believe that the only way to sort of bring change in a culture is from position of power and positions of power are always on top. And we tend to, not always, but we tend to gauge our own joy off of our own sense of accomplishment and prosperity and comfort and success just like everyone else does. Way back in the Old Testament, um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes told us that this way of the world, this way of competition and striving is completely meaningless. And it's all over the book of Ecclesiastes. But there, here's one verse, Ecclesiastes 4, 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What a great phrase, a chasing after the wind. It is an endless race that never has a finish line. And it never brings fulfillment and it never brings joy. It is completely pointless and it is meaningless. And then Jesus comes and shows us a different way. A way that's not based on power and striving 
and winning and success, but a way that's based on humility and love and service and sacrifice. And many of us, many of us have experienced the, the effects of that different way because when we um, first started to realize what it was that God did for us, what it was that Jesus did for us, when we started to just get a glimmer of his incredible love for us and the extent of his sacrifice and what he did to provide salvation for us, it broke our heart and it drew us to him and we placed our trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us and it changed us. And if that has happened to you, you were changed by the humility of God. And many of us also have stories of, of individuals in our lives. When we tell our stories and we'll, we'll, we'll name people, you know, that, that maybe loved us in such a way or, or stuck their neck out for us and took a risk on us, which they didn't need to do, or they served us in some way, or they encouraged us and they didn't really need to. And it changed us because that is what love and service and sacrifice do. It changes us. When I, was a, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I only remember one teacher from that year. And it was um, Mr. Carmen, my, my geometry teacher. And Mr. Carmen was a large man. I mean, he was a giant of a man. He um, had played football when, you know, back in the day. Like, he was one of the big boys that played on the line. You know, one of those guys. Um, and by the time I knew him, by the time he was my teacher, he was just kind of an older, gentle giant with worn-out knees, you know. And he used to carry around a golf club. I remember, and he would carry it upside down. He'd hold it by the head and use it as a cane and also something to point to the chalkboard, you know, which is a weird memory. But, um, but the reason that I remember Mr. Carmen is because of one day. And it was the day after a really sad tragedy happened in my school, which I'm not going to go into. But our school was kind of reeling a little bit. And I just remember on that day how heartbroken Mr. Carmen was. Big Mr. Carmen. It was a great big guy, and he was just so sad. And he went up to the chalkboard, and he wrote a big phone number on it. And I'm kind of old, <laughs> and so this was well before cell phones, well before email even, well before text messages, like all, like, well before there was any natural way to be in contact with a teacher other than office hours, you know. He writes this big phone number on there, and he says, this is the home phone number for me and my wife. I would like for all of you to write it down. Please call me if you ever want to talk. And that could be this week, it could be later in the year, it could be 10 years from now, and that's okay. It could be 2 o'clock in the morning from some payphone from who knows where, that's okay. Just please don't ever say you don't have someone to talk to. And I remember how I felt in that moment. When big Mr. Carmen chose to humble himself and serve a room full of 15-year-olds and tell them 
It's okay if it's 2 o'clock in the morning. If you ever need anything, just call. And I recognize, sort of looking back, that the, that the effect that that had on me is kind of out of proportion to the gesture. I mean, it was a very kind gesture. It was a great gesture. But it so impacted me. And by the way, I don't even know if it's kosher to give out your home number to T. I was like, so don't get hung up on that. Um, it had its desired effect on me, for sure. And that effect was massive. I had never experienced something like that. Not from a teacher. And I remember feeling loved and cared for by someone that I respected and looked up to. But in that moment, even more so, I got a glimmer of the type of person I wanted to be. I wanted to be the type of person that could be there to offer themselves in service of other people. And I wanted to spend my life making a difference in other people's lives. And by the time I graduated from high school, two years later, I knew I either wanted to be a high school teacher or I wanted to go into ministry. And one of the key events in both of those aspirations was that moment. And I don't know if... I don't know if other students in class were affected like I was, and we never talked about it. But what I, but what I do know is that that little two-minute moment when Mr. Carmen kind of stuck his neck out, <laughs> put his own comfort on the line, when he humbled himself to serve his students, that moment changed my life. Because that's, that's how it works, Right? Love and service and sacrifice, that's what actually changes people. That's what changes the world. And it's amazing that it's not just the recipients of love and service and sacrifice that are blessed. It's also the one that's doing the loving and the one that's doing the giving. Anyone who knows... the. The old adage that says it's better to give than to receive. Anyone who has devoted their life to generosity knows that that adage is true. It is so much better to be a giver. Because a life of love and humility and service and generosity is a life of blessing. That's why Paul could say no matter what circumstance you're going through, no matter what hardship Follow in the humility and others-focused life of Jesus, and you're going to get to joy. But we have to remember that that pathway is going to run counter of everything within us. You know, what, what the Bible teaches, what the Bible teaches butts up against, and it runs counter to the world and to culture, and a lot of times that's fairly easy to recognize. And certainly, Christians and churches have spent a lot of time pointing out how culture needs to change, how everyone else needs to change. And that's not that hard to see where, where, where the Bible and where, where God's teaching runs counter to, to the world. What is more difficult to recognize, what is much more important for us to recognize, is how the way of Jesus butts up against and runs counter to our own nature and what feels natural as a, as a way to build a, a fulfilling and, 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 joyful, and joyful life. The way of Jesus doesn't just run counter to them. The way of Jesus runs counter to us. 
our own selfishness, our own driving need to win, our need to exert power over others, to control others, to be praised by others, to lead and be served by others, our driving need for more, our pride, those things are the hardest things for us to allow God to change within us. And I think that most of us would, in all honesty, would probably have to admit that we each have a long, long way to go. For years, um, the show Star Trek would begin with the words space, the final frontier, right? Which is great for a sci-fi TV show. I think for our own lives, we'd have to say humility is the final frontier. And it may require lots of experiences, sometimes humbling experiences, or years of God molding us and shaping us and knocking the rough edges off of us for him to, at long last, get us over ourselves. What is it? You know, this is... You know, I've been, I placed my trust in Jesus Christ. I was baptized, just like the folks up here when I was nine years old. And I've been walking with God for a long time. Um, long, long time. And it is just fairly recently that I'm being hit again with what this looks like, what God is offering to me, what kind of life God is offering to me through a path of humility and and so some of the things, you know, I am I'm starting to learn slowly and dimly that a life of humility kind of, it requires us trusting in things that just don't make sense. Trusting in things that seem illogical. Trusting in things that just appear Foolish in the eyes of everyone else, in the eyes of the world. So in a world of competition that is ruled by the powerful, that's run by the victors, we foolishly believe that things like love and service and sacrifice are even more effective. We're in a world that says that our ambition and our uh, progress and our striving and winning, like those are the things that should be our number one priority. We foolishly believe that a path of service toward others will actually fill our cup with a sense of meaning and purpose and significance. And when Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, work with your hands and mind your own business, we foolishly believe that somehow, like, just being faithful in our own context will somehow matter in the grand scheme of things. That being a loving and faithful parent will, will echo on for centuries through future generations. Or being a, a, just a, a loving and generous and kind neighbor or friend will somehow prevent a few of the, of the threads of, of, of society from unraveling. And we, and we have to do these things knowing that we will never get full credit. 
knowing that just about everything that we do in humility will not be noticed. And yet we foolishly believe that those are the building blocks to a life of significance and joy. So Paul, in going through terrible circumstances, writing to people who are going through tough circumstances, says, all y'all adopt the same mindset of Jesus. A humble mindset that is focused on others. And there's probably hundreds of application points because the context is different in everybody's story. But here's just a few to think about for this next week. This week, is there someone that you could serve that you are not expected to serve? Is there a way this week where you could leverage your own resources, leverage your own network, leverage your influence, leverage your power or whatever, your position, leverage the things that you have that are valuable so that someone else can win the day? Can you leverage what you have to help someone else win the day? Could you speak into the life of someone else the very words of affirmation and encouragement that you yourself long to hear? Could you lay aside your own deep, deep desire for those and serve someone else? Can you celebrate someone else getting the credit? When we do those types of things, when we take steps toward selflessness and humility and focused on others, we not only bless other people, we also take steps toward the life of, of, of significance and joy that God wants for us to experience. Can we do that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, God, we are overwhelmed by your humility. And as we see the life of Jesus played out and what he did for us, Father, it draws us to you and it changes us and then as he calls us to follow in his footsteps father it looks really scary and father it seems like when we look at the way of Jesus that it's not going to work that it's not going to bring about change in this world it's not going to bring about joy and significance in our own life but father we know that it's the way of Jesus and it works. And I pray that you will give us courage to love. You'll give us courage to humble ourselves, to go against the way of the world and follow the way of our Savior. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.